Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, this is a comment that came in regarding our program on sexual assault on the BYU campus and the honor code there. Uh, this uh, caller said, The ambiguity of the research fails to draw a clear conclusion. I don't necessarily believe pornography is as much of a problem as it is a symptom of a greater illness. As I see it, the objectification of women's bodies, of human bodies, and the way in which men are encouraged, cultured, to think about sex and women are the issues. Mass pornography addiction is just a response to these illnesses. These are the crises, and the anecdote uh, requires a revolution of all image-based media and sex culture, not just pornography. Furthermore, have a relationship with your kids. Talk to them about the human body and about sex. Educate them about the differences between nudity, sex, abuse, sexuality, violence, etc. That's a call that came in regarding the program. Keep the comments coming at upraxcess at gmail.com and at upr.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. French photographer Caroline Planck was on the USU campus recently to present portraits of and interviews with individuals affected by capital punishment in Texas. Her presentation was part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, facilitated by Utah State University's Department of Journalism and Communication. The Utah legislature recently considered and did not pass a bill that would have abolished the death penalty in the state. Plonk first became interested in how people are impacted by capital punishment while attending college in Austin. Since the reinstatement of the death penalty following a four-year moratorium ending in 1976, Texas has executed more people than any other state. Since 2005, as a part of her ongoing project, Until Death Do Us Part, Caroline Plonk has been interviewing and photographing family members of death row inmates, family members of victims, former death row inmates, attorneys, chaplains, former prosecutors and prison officials, and others. We're going to hear some of these stories. We'll also later in the program hear the voices of a man who was executed in Texas in 2010 and his spiritual advisor who has attended many executions. For Access Utah today, we are uh, we are talking with uh, Caroline Plunk, who recently gave a lecture to um, USU students. Um, this is a part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series presented by the Journalism and Communication Department. And uh, the the subject matter is the the death penalty. Caroline Plunk, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell me again what what the name of the, your project is. So um, I've titled my project until until death do us part, and it's about the death penalty in Texas, with the idea that you know when a crime gets committed, someone gets sentenced to death. It creates this relationship between people, unlikely people that would have never met otherwise. And you know, suddenly are all connected to each other, and and end up you know suffering for various reasons, depending on what their role in the process is. Now you're you're an abolitionist when it comes to death penalty. That's your point of view. But I think you you have said when you came to this topic, you you didn't necessarily want to. I guess, join a group or... Yeah, group. yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I was raised in France, and France abolished the death penalty in uh, 1981. Uh, yeah, when I... And then I moved to Texas, and at the time when I was uh, doing my graduate work was, was when Texas was the most active, and they were, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, uh, yeah, early 2000s, they were executing about almost one person a week. 
And I found it very strange. You know, I was looking at the uh, Austin American statement and regularly you'd see those little mugshots of, uh, oh, this person is going to be executed today. Uh, I didn't think a whole, I thought it was strange, but didn't think a whole lot about it. And, and then later on, I thought, okay, you know, morally I'm against it and I want to know more about this, but uh, I've never been really a, a group person and I wanted to go investigate on my own. So I started writing someone on death row and uh, visited him within a year. This, this is interesting. So you, uh, how does that work? Do you, well, how, do you how do you pick somebody? How yeah, you... well, so uh, the inmates in, in Texas are very isolated. I mean, they're in solitary confinement. They do not have access to TV. They do not have access to internet. And the only contact they have with the outside is through uh, correspondence. And uh, but they'll get, you know, they'll they'll work with groups on the outside who kind of do an inventory, if you will, of of people who want to write death row inmates. And uh, I found a site and you know went through the letters and and picked someone and started writing him. Yeah. Mm. No, just parenthetically, kind of a side note. I was reading on some things that you'd, you'd written. Um, th- there are women who marry. <laughs> there are Pris- many. Prisoners, uh, and, and kind of a what, subculture. It's, it's, it it's, is a subculture, and that was one of my my biggest discovery was the first time I visited. Yeah, the you know the visiting room is full of European women. U- European women. A lot of European, mm-hmm. some American, but mostly European women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Will they get into this because they're against the death penalty? What do what, yeah. some are advocates? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I mean pretty much all of them are against it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a few, uh, a few are quite uh, are quite active in their their friends or husbands' case, uh, and but some uh, some are not. They're mm-hmm. just. Uh, in a romantic relationship. You could see this, I guess, from the inmates' point of view. They don't have much contact. And so yeah. if you got somebody going to visit you regularly, um, but from the from the women's point of view. I think it works both ways. And I know, you know, it's funny because I've always resisted the, the urge to talk much about it because I mm-hmm. think it lessens the aura of really right. what, what the death penalty is. But I think those relationships really work both ways, you know, mm-hmm. because th- these women have, have, have someone who's entirely devoted to them or their emotional needs mm-hmm. and so you know they do give each other support in yeah. a way yeah but uh, of course no physical contact of no. course but but emotional yeah. need support b- b- mm-hmm. back and forth this does get us to an interesting point um this i guess idea humanizes these these men i guess it's mostly men who are on death row yeah 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 mostly and i i don't know i i think maybe in America at least with, with you know the death penalty it happens and as you said it's just a little mugshot in the paper and yeah. it's another one this week maybe we don't want to think about it well so you think you were you're trying to say that this relationship I, I don't human- no I, I just say the relation thinking about the fact that a woman would marry a person yes. on death row sort of you know brings humanity into their humanity the the humanity of the death row inmate into well, I, I don't. Yeah, although I don't, I don't, I don't think, know. I don't think these women are necessarily always very well perceived by the public. Mm. I would think, you know. Oh, I see. This, uh, stigma. Yeah, yeah, that they'd be. You know, I mean, so, don't get me wrong. Some some of them are very vocal, and you know, some of them are really there, and they really fight for for the cases of their husbands. But mm-hmm. you know, I think for the general public, when you know, when you. Th- general public thinks about them, it, it always comes out to, oh, this must be 
ab abnormal, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, that would yeah. be, I suppose, your first reaction right. to it. Yeah. And I guess on the Facebook, you you know, let alone marry them, why are you even associating with this person? You know, the yes. mm -hmm. murderers and, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you you know, there are... There are lots of lessons to be to be also learn when you listen to these people, you know. And then, for me, for that work, I mean, talking from from different people across the spectrum was also a really really interesting experience because you get some some very different viewpoints and you see all of this coming together. But it is it is definitely a subculture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what was your what was your goal going in doing this project, and and has that changed? Well. Uh, I think the goal, I wanted, I mean, from the beginning, I wanted to learn more about the realities of, of, uh, of capital punishment there. And also, you know, how, you know, if you're someone's sentenced to die, how do you, you know, how do you live with that? It's a strange way to say it, but uh, what's, what's your perspective on life, you know? And one, you know, one of the points that comes up is uh, it is more expensive to execute. Mm -hmm. Someone in the, in the U.S. Than, yes. than life without parole. That's because of all the appeals yes. process. Um, and so, if you think about life without parole, uh, I don't know what most inmates would choose because it's, it's yeah. Some of them not say a good they, life. Some of them would say no. They would not choose. They'd rather be executed. You know. But again, I think you know they can say that. But comes the day mm. with their execution, I think there is still a strong uh, self-preservation instinct that kicks in. You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, so doing this project, you, you photograph people and then you, you interview them. Yeah, right? I interviewed them first and then I would photograph uh -huh. them, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By the way, you can, you can find some of these uh, at uh, carolineplanck.com, yes. the, the website. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about some of the people that you've, that you've, uh, you've talked to. Um, just, just picking out a few yes. that you gave at your presentation. Uh, so uh, Gloria Rubach, mm -hmm. is that, that the name? Uh, she's an activist. At a pen pal to, yes. to at yes. least one of the mm -hmm. Yeah, inmates. she lives in Houston and visits death row regularly almost every week. Uh, she's part of the Texas Abolition Movement, and they're really active in, in the area. And she's been, you know, following, I mean, she's been really following the news in Texas for the past three decades. Mm. Yeah, yeah. She's really a fighter out there and always protesting executions do you uh excuse me i guess m most of them all of them would have protesters out uh, execution yeah mm -hmm. usually yeah mm -hmm. especially that group they always try to have someone out there and and also there is this professor that you know i talked about during the presentation dennis longmeyer and who lives actually in huntsville so he's always there when there is uh, an execution mm -hmm. yeah um gloria rubeck she she made an, an impactful point she says they're they're all poor people. Yes, on death row. There, mm -hmm. There's a that's what abolitionists and point to. I guess one of the main points mm -hmm. is that if you're a poor person, you're much more likely to end up on death row. Yes, yes, because you don't have. You know, you cannot afford a good attorney, and you know, you get uh, connected to a court-appointed attorney who usually has to work lots of cases, and they do not have the time nor the resources to do a thorough investigation mm -hmm. on the case. Yeah. Um, and I guess not to say if you'd get off scot-free if you're wealthy, but you could maybe, your attorney could get you, get the death penalty taken off the table. Yeah, probably so, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with photographer Carleen Plunk, who was on the USU campus recently uh, to present portraits of and interviews with individuals affected by capital punishment in Texas. This presentation was part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series uh, from the USU Department of Journalism and Communication. In the next uh, uh, segment of the program, we're going to get into some more stories. Uh, Caroline Plonk has been interviewing and photographing family members of death row inmates, family members of victims, former death row inmates, attorneys, chaplains, former prosecutors and prison officials, and others. In the next segment, we will also hear the voice of a man who was executed in Texas in 2010. Hope you'll stay with us. Uh, your comments, questions, uh, welcome here about the death penalty. And our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. The 1991 novel American Psycho took you to the darkest corners of Wall Street. Not quite, though, in the way the author intended. What was supposed to be a novel about the banking system in 1986, 87, 88 really became a much more experimental kind of hallucinatory investigation into lifestyle. I'm Kai Rizdal, American Psycho, 25 years on. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is French photographer Caroline Plonk. She was on the USU campus recently uh, to give a presentation as part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series uh, from the USU Department of Commun uh, Journalism and Communication. Uh, since 2005, as a part of her ongoing project until death to us part, Caroline Plonk has been interviewing and photographing family members of death row inmates, family members of victims, former death row inmates, attorneys, chaplains, former prosecutors and prison officials and others. We're hearing some of these stories. Later in the program, we'll be hearing uh, the voice of a man who was executed in uh, Texas in 2010 and his spiritual advisor who has attended many executions. Uh, so Dennis Longmire, he's, he's a professor at Sam Houston State University. He does vigils, I guess. Yes. All of the executions? Or? Mm -hmm. Yes, he's, he, he's there, you know, and he's, he was an opponent when he moved to Huntsville to, to, to take his job, and he's always, he's always been. He's known in town for, mm. for being there, standing at the corner. He tells a, just a heart-running story about interviewing a daughter of a yes. man about to be executed. Yes, yes, who, uh, who went to him one night that he was having a vigil and, and asked him, you know, uh, well, whether the you know procedure was was painless, which you know, he wasn't sure at the time, and whether you know how long it would take for them to bring the body out to the funeral place, so they you know so she could touch her father because she's never touched you know felt the touch of her father since all visits or no contact visits, mm. and uh, that went on further because. Uh, uh, Longmeyer witnessed the execution of a man named Eric Neno, and and that's one goal he had after the execution was to go to the funeral home as fast as possible to be able to touch him and see if he, if he was still warm. Mm -hmm. And all these years, he said it's, it was because of this girl, you know, he, he, and he was obsessed. I think a bit whether like, you know, did I tell her the truth? Was she, you know, was she maybe able to to uh, to touch her father while he was still warm? Mm -hmm. Um, that's, I guess, one of your goals is to try to 
show how the death penalty has ripple effects yes. right, into mm-hmm. their their families. I guess you've you've talked to um, parents of victims, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've, and uh, actually, the the people I've talked to, uh, they they were not in favor of the death penalty, or maybe at the beginning they weren't sure, and as years went by, uh, they were uh, they were not. They uh, I talked to uh, Ron Carlson, who was. Uh, you know, he was the uh, her sister. His sister was uh, was murdered by uh, Carla Faye Tucker. Uh, it was a really uh, fairly yeah, big fa- case, famous in, case, yes, in Texas. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, by for, for years, he was consumed. I think with 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 anger against her, and and realized, you know, one day that he couldn't live like that anymore, and found the cor- courage to forgive her, and he went mm. and visited her. And I think they were in touch for a while. But when she was executed, he went to witness on her side. You know, he didn't choose to witness because the, the, the witnesses are separated during execution. They're not in the same room. But he went to, vit- to, to witness the execution on Carla's face, Tucker's behalf, you know. And this really created problems in his family. Like they, they did not understand how he could uh, forgive the murderer of his sister. Hmm. Yeah. And the argument you hear, and you hear this sometimes from victims' families, is they want retribution. Yes. Mm-hmm. They want justice. Mm-hmm. They're angry. Yes, they're angry. But again, I think very often, because sometimes the appeal takes so long, and and they, they, they have, you know, the victims' have, families have to relieve this moment over and over again, and they're never sure whether, you know, maybe the legislation will change and, and the, the murderer is going to get out or, you know. I think in a way it prevents them, you know, until the execution takes place, it prevents them really from moving forward mm. with it. And mm. and often, apparently, when they witness the execution, they still think that that person didn't pay enough, you know. Mm. It's like, oh, falling asleep is not painful enough. Mm. And I think they don't, I mean, I think they can't imagine the living condition on Texas death row or, you know, every little steps that is going to take them to the execution chamber, like minute after minute after minute. You're right. Yeah. So some victims' families would like, I don't know, what, a more painful death, a more... I imagine so, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're full of, you know, they're full of anger. And the anger, um, you know very well that when you're angry, the anger eats you up. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it does nothing to to the person you're angry at. You know, it's it's this internal feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You talked to and one of the interesting people you talked to is Linda White, who's Mm -hmm. who's mother of a victim. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about this crime first of all. So um, our daughter, I think if I remember well. uh, Well, I mean, she met those two boys at a gas station and I can't remember exactly. I mean, if they kidnapped her but you know she ended up living with them and they you know they raped her and and killed her and they were both uh teenagers so they were not eligible for the death penalty uh they were you know they were sentenced to long sentences uh but you know after that uh linda white you know started actually studying uh grief and uh she started teaching in prison you know and it really i think opened her eyes about you know the realities of the prison system. Years later, she she learned that she could do a mediation, so actually meet one of the murderer of her of her uh, daughter, 
And by that time, I think she had realized she she had seen his case. At the time, the the, the boys were condemned. I, I think she didn't know much about them. But later on, you know, she saw their cases. And, and for that boy in particular, she realized that, you know, he had committed several, he had made several uh, attempts to commit suicide as early as eight years old. So she was saying, yeah, you can look at the crime, but you also have to look at the background of the person. Mm. And she, you know, she met with the boy and she said it was really, really powerful. And she actually helped him parole out of prison. Uh, she got in- involved in restorative justice, justice right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is what she said. Um, she said there was an aura of sadness yes. about him. Um, um, she she said before that that she and her husband, uh, she mentions that a lot of victims' families are angry. She said, we we never were. We were, mm-hmm. we were just crushed. Yeah. Um, then she goes on to say, this is something that I think some would push back against. She said, uh, talking about the perpetrator, one of the perpetrators that she had met, she said, a, a life gone wrong and so much of it not of his own making. And that last part, I guess some people would push back against that. Not of his yeah. own making, you know. Uh, some people would feel that if you ascribe too much to the environment, you know, where's the personal responsibility? But that's how she felt about this. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. The, this, uh, I guess he was a boy at the time yeah, of the yes. crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does the, you know, does your environment actually, can you blame your environment for who you become? You know, like how much abuse is too much abuse and who, where does the responsibility lie? Yeah. That's really the question. So we make a transition from that to the environment on death row. Mm-hmm. You were saying in the presentation that uh, some of the men go mad yeah a lot of them mental I think. Illness. yeah yeah and even the ones i think we still hold it pretty well together i mean they're under they're under a lot of uh, a lot of stress i mean death row is a very noisy place uh and a lot of the men you know just lose it scream i mean there's no you know there's very few quiet moments on death row i think mm. Yeah. You interviewed uh, Anthony Graves. His yes. name. He's mm-hmm. he's a former death row inmate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that's quite the. Uh, how did he? How did he get off death row? What? Uh, he got off death row. Uh, he, from the beginning, he claimed his innocence. You know, it was uh, it was a murder when I think a, a house was burned. Um, family died. They arrested two men. The first man who implicated death, uh, Graves, saying Graves did it with him but very quickly retracted himself and, and, and told uh, the prosecutor at the time, I think, you know, no, I did it on my own. But the prosecutor just wanted to get them both, and he withheld the evidence for years and years and years until finally uh, someone came in, was, you know, interviewing him about the case, and he said on camera, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, the other guy told me that he had <laughs> d- done it on his own. Yeah, and that's what got Graves out. And Graves, you know, at two execution date, I mean, he almost got executed. Hmm. What does he? What does he say? Is he bitter? What is he? He says he's not. He says, I mean, what I mean that he's not bitter. That and I think he's really he's he's moved a long way. I mean, he's you know he's done. He's created his own foundation, and he's he's he's. Speaks very well. He's a good advocate. I mean, yeah, yeah. Which is not the case for of 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 all the inmates that come out. A lot of mm. them, you know, are total wreck, and some of them are not even afforded uh, compensation when they come out, even if they spend they've spent fifteen, twenty years. Sometimes they have to f- fight fight for it. Graves had to fight for compensation. They mm. wouldn't give it to him at first. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, Graves also said he, he says uh, his goal is to fight the death penalty with education. He says if you protest or march, that's just going to solidify people in, in their opinions. But if you educate them based on your own experiences, his own experiences. Yeah, yeah I think that's, that, that's very true, you know. You cannot, you know, shove, shove an opinion into somebody's throat. You know, you have to, you know, try to show them what, you know, what was your experience, what you've seen. I mean, that's also what I try to do with the, the project. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. entitled to their own opinion. But do you, you know, do you really know your, what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Do you know, really know your topic and the reality of it? Yeah. Uh, have we executed innocent people? Oh, yeah, think? I think we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there cases we prove that, or, or we just suppose? Or uh, there is a case uh, in Texas. Uh, Todd Winningham is, was probably innocent. There is the 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 Kentu case also that I was uh, mentioning today uh, during the presentation, and it was you know pretty likely that it was it was innocent. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about that. The 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 Kentu case. You you interviewed his mother. His mother. Uh, yes. Uh, and. It was, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very difficult for them to get their voices heard. I mean, they're, you know, they're very poor family, do not speak uh, well English. And, uh, yeah, they're kind of, you know, really crushed by the system. They're completely powerless. Hmm. What, what about the, uh, let me first have you talk about Sam Millsap. Uh, yes. He's a former district attorney. He mentioned the Cantu case. Mm-hmm. Um, He's and he's a he's a former prosecutor, and he prosecuted the Cantu case. Oh, he prosecuted the Cantu case. Yes, yes. Now he's not so sure that yeah, that no, Cantu so was sure. guilty. Yeah, yeah. And it was based on eyewitness testimony, you know. And, mm. and he said, you know, when he went back and looked, you know, when the, the the reporter from the Chronicle called him about the Cantu case, he didn't even remember having sent Cantu, I think, mm. to death row. But then he went back and looked at, at his files and, you know, the eyewitness uh, identification process. And he, was, he said he was horrified by what he, what he saw, you know, and, and at the time he didn't think twice about it. Mm. Yeah. So the case of eyewitness testimony being, carrying more weight in the past, I think? Yeah, mm-hmm. Like yeah, and other evidence. Yeah, it was we, a complete, you know. it, it was, yeah, it was a fairly complicated case as yeah. well, yeah, yeah. And, and Kentu, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, he, he, I think from, if I remember well, not been framed uh, for the the murder at the time of the murder, but later on uh, he assaulted a police officer. Mm. But for some reason they could not get him for that, and so you know, dug, 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 and and suddenly there he's accused of uh, mm. another murder case. Yeah. So uh, Sam Millsap, the, the former district attorney, he's concerned about the process. He said the prosecutor drives the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. In America, he's saying he's saying a former prosecutor. He's saying the prosecutor has too much yes. power. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, that that's what he repeated when I met him. That yeah, he was a very uh, he had a very powerful uh, position. He went on to say that he believes now the death penalty is immoral when there are less cost alternatives and uh, the current uh, system is so subject to, to errors. errors. Yeah, and once you make an error in a death penalty case and the person gets executed, like the you know the investigator Richard Reno was mm -hmm. saying, once the person is dead, n nobody cares. Why, you know, are you gonna spend money and resources trying to uh, look at an old case and uh, yeah. Do you, you've, have you interviewed people who've, I guess, made that journey? They were for the death penalty, now they're not? Well, I mean, Millsap was one of them, right? Mm -hmm. And now he's really an advocate against it. Yeah. Yeah. 
because of what he's experienced, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, These are all impactful, but uh, your interview with uh, Carol Pickett. Yes. He's a chaplain, um, witnessed 95 executions. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks about some of the effects on people that we may not think about. For example, guards. The guards, yeah, will come, you know, tie down the inmate and, you know, they come back half an hour, an hour later to, you know, remove the body. And, yeah. And I think there's also a real stigma. I tried to, uh, to interview some guards and never found anyone who wanted to, to talk to me. I mean, from the front end, from the prison system, they certainly didn't want to have anything to do with me. But I tried also through the back door, and it was the same thing. You know, we mm. don't have a problem doing our job. And, but I think there is a real stigma um, for guards who might be struggling to to come forward and and admit it, you know, they didn't want to be maybe seen as weaklings or mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, you talked with Jim Willett. This I I I think he in my mind stands in for a lot of people. Uh, he's I guess currently a Texas Prison Museum director. Mm-hmm. He's a former warden. Yes. At at the place where they executed yeah. mm-hmm. at least the men. Yeah. Uh, was oversaw eighty nine executions. You could tell he's trying to, I guess, emotionally distance himself. I think so. He describes himself as a A cog in a wheel. wheel. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, yeah, he wants to, uh, in my mind, he doesn't want to face his own moral responsibility in the the process, you know. He says, I'm not the one who sentenced them to, to, you know, die, and there is an appeal process, and he thinks, or he wants to believe that the appeal process is fair. And so, you know... Then he's just doing his job mm. for the state of Texas. Here's where it, it broadens out, you know, and I was hearing his experiences. I was connecting that to, I guess, to all of us. And, you know, whether you're for or against mm-hmm. the death penalty, we are at a remove. We're, we're, not, we're not very connected. You know, you might read about yeah. it in the paper. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if you think if we were closer, if we witnessed executions, uh, that might change minds. I think it would. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, that's that's also one of the goal of the project, to make people aware of really what, what goes on, you know. It's just, you know, it's not just a crime and then the response to the crime. There is a, a lot going on and a lot... Of, a lot affecting society at, at different at different levels and uh, also a lot to be learned in lessons about human uh, dignity, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and how we treat the worst of the worst also. Uh, I guess that brings up a point. That's, uh, that's you know, what, how, how should the um, punishment fit the crime, right? Yes. And that you, there, there's a video you showed. We'll put this in the... Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get the audio from it. Uh, so tell me about uh, David Lee Powell. Uh, David Lee Powell uh, was a, a brilliant uh, student who went to uh, the University of Texas Austin, I think in the 70s, and then he got, I think, into the drug scene there and um, became an addict, I think. And uh, in a chase with the police, uh, he ended up shooting and killing a pol- police officer, uh, spent... Uh, 32 years on death row before being executed in 2010. And he had become uh, a model prisoner 
uh, when um, all the appeals failed in his case, you know, his lawyer compiled uh, compiled a pretty big clemency package package uh, with testimonies from people who knew him, and that included, you know, family members, but also pe- people who might write him, and also guards and other inmates. And uh, I read it; it was a v- you know very moving testimonies that you know he was this completely reformed person, uh, very remorseful about his, his crime, you know. And in the, in the video that was shot uh, shortly before his death, I mean, he brings out a good point by saying, you know, what, what would be a good solution to those mm-hmm. heinous crimes, you know. I'm so, so sorry for having killed Ralph Oplanado. and stolen from him everything he might have become and all the worlds that he shared with others with the people that loved him how much pain is enough to make up for irreparable harm I don't know that you ever achieved that I don't know and I think it also gets to what is the goal yeah. of, you know, is it punishment? Is it retribution? Mm-hmm. Is it, many of these departments are called yeah. the corrections department. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember a woman that I interviewed also, our daughter, a uh, daughter, eight-year-old daughter had been murdered. And, you know, I asked her, you know, if there was one thing you would have wished, what would have been? And, and he said, I know it's going to sound crazy, but it would have been to take the murderer and be able to reform him. You know, hmm. if I'd wish one thing, that would be that. And I thought it was a pretty powerful statement. Hmm. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the people in favor of the death penalty will say it's, some would say that it's not a deterrent. That, you know, the people committing these crimes don't stop and think. Oh, they don't, know About yeah. it. But you know, pro-death penalty people will say, well, at least you deter that person from committing a crime um, again. Again, yeah, know. well, but uh, if that person stays in prison for life, that would also be a pretty good deterrent I think right. you know and also you know you never know how the, you know the inmate or the victim's family might react 10 20 years down the road you know are they going to change are they going to be remorseful will the family of the victim want to talk to the to the perpetrator you know uh it seems that a lot of victims uh families the ones who you know are able to talk to the perpetrator after years and years, they realize, okay, it's 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 a human being, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily a monster. It's a human being who came to do what he did for such 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 reason. But you know, not to glorify it in any ways. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think we want like like Martin right. Drone is saying, you know, we right. we want to portray them as as things, animals. You mm-hmm. know, they're people. He's a he's a former. Death Former, row? Yes. Mm-hmm. Inmate? He's, he's out now, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, further evidence came to light? What what happened there? Yeah, Did I mean, you? I think in his case, uh, uh, the prosecution also had uh, withheld evidence that the, the, the bullet in his ca- case, uh, he was accused of, you know, shooting and killing the person, like straight shot in the, he- in the heart or something like mm-hmm. that, but the bullet has actually uh, ricocheted from a wall mm-hmm. to kill the person. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time for his lawyers to have access to the yeah. information. What he said in your interview with him um, is that uh, the, the guards don't call us by name. Yeah, their numbers. Their numbers. Um, he, he's implying at least that, that that's 
uh, maybe I don't know if that's probably the rule, but to, but it's also he's implying for the guards benefit they don't have to get emotionally. I think uh, attached yeah. to to the inmates, and his quote is, "It's easier to kill something than it is to kill somebody." Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think you know from others conver- other conversations I've had with other inmates, uh, the guards that are more sympathetic to the inmates, they don't stay very long on death row. Mm-hmm. You know, they get moved to other sections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the vast majority on death row are guilty. I think we. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd agree that that's the that's the case, um, and you know some people say, "Well, they're getting what they deserved." Right. You know, yes. Um, what would what, what do you say to that? Well, I think it's a very uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very normal reaction, and I would not want these people to be out in the streets. You know, uh, though my point would be, well, can you could you make could anything constructive come out of such a horrible crime at the beginning, you know? And I think that's something that society might have a hard time accepting, you know? Well, those people, okay, they might... So they get they get locked up, and um, then they start... I think they start to think, you know, about themselves, where they came from, or, you know... It's either that, either they go through a period of self-reflection, or they go completely mad, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. But some of them become quite different people, and even if they were to spend the rest of their lives in prison, you know, isn't isn't there a way that they could contribute to society or even to their microcosm world, to their prison world uh, in a positive way? I mean, and I know not all of them could do that, but, you know, that's what I would... Uh, I mean, if anything, that's probably what I would aim for. I mean, it's probably mm. wishful full thinking. And I think it's, it's an idea that uh, it's really that's very difficult for society that anything positive could come out of something that is so horrendous at the beginning. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Carleen Plonk. Uh, She was on the USU campus recently to present portraits of and interviews with individuals affected by capital punishment in Texas. Her presentation was a part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, facilitated by Utah State University's Department of Journalism and Communication. Uh, since 2005, Carleen Plonk, uh, as part of her ongoing project Until Death to Us Part, has been interviewing and photographing family members of death row inmates, family members of victims, former death row inmates, attorneys, chaplains, former prosecutors and prison officials, and others. We're hearing these stories. Coming up in our last segment with Carleen Plonk, we'll hear from Kathy Cox, who's a spiritual advisor to uh, some of the men on death row. She's attended many executions. More following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the California newt. USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of co-evolution. They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science.
Robin Young. Public radio listeners across the country have grown to love this voice. I'm Diane Rehm. She's retiring but has a new passion, the right to choice at the end of life. Next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is photographer Carleen Plonk. She was on the USU campus recently uh, giving a presentation in the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, uh, which is presented by Utah State University's Department of Journalism and Communication. And uh, since 2005, as a part of her ongoing project Until Death Do Us Part, Carleen Plonk has been interviewing and photographing family members of death row inmates, family members of victims, former death row inmates, attorneys, chaplains, former prosecutors and prison officials, and others. And uh, you can join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com if you'd like, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, from the point of view of the abolition movement, uh, you know, trying to get rid of the, the, the death penalty, uh, a lot of the arguments come down to fairness. Mm-hmm. Economic fairness, the the, the process, yeah. the, the potential for error. Um, could you envision a system that we could make that would be fair enough that that could support a death penalty? Uh, I think not as long as human people, or human beings, are involved in it. Mm-hmm. Just too prone to error. Yeah, it's too prone mm-hmm. to error. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what. Uh, I'd like to compare and contrast. Uh, I, I've talked to uh, some people from, from, from Europe who, mm-hmm. who, when they come to the U.S. and they learn about the fact that we're executing people on a fairly regular basis, the uh, almost universally people I've talked to are appalled. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a uh, you know difference in culture. Europe, uh, France outlawed the death penalty in 1981. I think European Union. Yeah, I can't remember. In, in there, yeah, so, yeah, in there yeah. somewhere. So, and you go back and forth, right? What has uh, is, is there between the U.S. and France? What, what, what do you when you talk about people about the death penalty? What, what are some of the differences? Well, I think I mean in 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 France, uh, for sure. I mean, I think the vast majority. I mean, it's ingrained in society that you know we are against the death penalty. Although with the the, the current event, you know, the trend uh, could change. You know, there is a lot of fear in society and. Uh, People tend to react to fear by uh, by being violent. You know, mm. yeah, yeah. So you think it, it, there's it's the, a possibility th- this could come back? Come well, back? I mean, we uh, France would be uh, it's part of the European Constitution, so I think uh, France would have. To, I mean, France would be uh, would have to exit the European Union mm-hmm. in order to reinstate the, the yeah. death penalty. But some uh, Marie Le Pen, she's talking yeah. about it, is she? Oh yeah, she yeah. is. She brings it up. All the time. Yeah. She'd love to do a referendum. And yeah, yeah. Uh, here in Utah, there's, there's been some movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it was surprising to me because just two years ago, they, they, were, they brought back the possibility of the firing squad right. because of uh, trouble getting, potential trouble yeah. getting yes. the lethal injection drugs. But just this last se- uh, session, Republicans brought up abolition in Utah. It almost passed. It almost passed. Yeah, it was a big, big surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were saying in some small counties, well, there are counties small are refusing to... To prosecute death penalty cases because it's too costly, mm-hmm. you know, and they could go bankrupt. 
and you know if if anything you know i think the money factor <laughs> might be what will drive the death penalty out in some places because it's really really expensive to, to prosecute someone mm -hmm. for a capital case so uh, i i imagine your hope would be that through education efforts yeah. that uh, the i guess the reach a majority of public opinion against the death penalty and then it would be phased out Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the more you know, if people, if people really saw it for what it is, the entire process, I think they would change their mind. But you know, the main thing is how do you get them to be concerned about you know who wants to be concerned about yeah. people on death row? You know. Right. Yeah. As one of the people you uh, you uh, interviewed said, uh, once that person's executed, there's nobody. Nobody cares talking yeah. about yeah, them yeah. anymore, and you know. Sometimes you know, like the the Todd Willingham case in Texas or the Kentu case. You know, some some cases are brought back to light, but then you know, mostly it's mostly it's through uh, through the press or journalism, but it rarely makes it back into the the court system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to close with uh, Kathy Cox. And there's a there's a video. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get that on. Um, tell me about Kathy Cox. So uh, she comes from Dallas. She's probably, she's in her 90s now. She comes from Dallas. Uh, she's been a minister for, uh, to death inmate for years and years, like, you know, with, the, with David Powell. She was a minister apparently for 20 years. She drives from Dallas and spends usually her Thursdays and Fridays on death row talking to, to men. And, you know, she's a true spiritual advisor, really, really following the guy. I'm, I don't know how many executions she has witnessed, but... Uh, but a lot, you know. She's a really amazing person. Many of them die with their eyes open, and there's you can tell as the, the medication comes through, you can tell uh, that when the eyes stop and there's no recognition. The old mountain people where I came from in West Virginia believed that if you were looking directly in someone's eyes when they died, their strength passes into you. And I know I couldn't do near the things that I do. If I didn't watch, I watched their eyes. I hardly take my eyes off theirs. But then all of a sudden you realize he's not there. It doesn't get any easier ever. I always tell them exactly what to expect, uh, uh, the procedures. I try to help them not be afraid. She says that she's witnesses sometimes two executions. Well, she says this week, yeah. two executions. Mm -hmm. And one of those was David Lee Powell that we mm -hmm. talked about mm -hmm. uh, earlier. Yes. And you focus in on her eyes, and she, she does seem weary. Yeah. Um, I, I can't imagine. I don't I, I mean, I'm not sure where she gets her strengths from, but I can't imagine how it must be. Because those are people, I mean, she's known for years, a lot of them, yeah. What would you what would you say finally about the about the, about your you know, about your work with this your experiences and or death penalty in general? Well, hopefully uh, this will uh, cause people to ponder, you know, and want to know more about it and the the reality of it of the process. Mm. And, yeah. You find a lot more uh, going to carolineplunk.com. The last name is P L A N Q U E. CarolinePlunk.com. By the way, you you, uh, you do much else, right? We talked about the death penalty, so you do this project, you do other projects. 
And yes, I have a day pro- job. <laughs> your, your projects are side jobs, right? You do a day job. Yes, I have a day job. I mean, um, I do. I mean, I, I, I do speak about the death penalty. I, I spoke uh, twice in France in, in the fall at the, uh, at the law school uh, in Nantes and also uh, at the international high school. And it's true that, you know, I mean, students are always very, very curious. They always have lots of, uh, lots of questions. And uh, there was a large, a large scale exhibit that was produced a few years ago. Uh, we are going to hang it uh, at the law school in Nantes against this fall, and we'll do uh, a public debate as well. By the way, what do the students say? These are you know, the younger people have grown up without the death penalty yeah. in France, right? Well, I think that they're, they're actually really curious about, you know, like the nuts and bolts of the process in the U.S. and what does death row look like and who are those people and who ends up there. It's, it's often it's very pragmatic questions, actually. Mm. We will leave it there. We've been talking with Caroline uh, Planck, and she gave a presentation recently on the OSU campus uh, in the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series for the Journalism and Communications Department at Utah State University. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We thank you for listening to Access Utah uh, today. And uh, you can uh, give us your comments on uh, today's subject at upraxcess at gmail.com. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to be talking with Charles Whelan, He's author previously of Naked Statistics and Naked Economics. He's out with a new book called Naked Money. He says, consider the $20 bill. It has no more value as a simple slip of paper than Monopoly money. Yet even children recognize that tearing one into small pieces is an act of inconceivable stupidity. What makes a $20 bill actually worth $20? In this third volume of his best-selling Naked series, Charles Whelan uses this seemingly simple question to open the door to the surprisingly colorful world of money and banking. We'll hear stories from Argentina, Zimbabwe, North Korea, America, China, and elsewhere around the globe. Charles Whelan, Naked Money, tomorrow on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. My name is Nicole Beckstead. I'm doing a walk for NIDA, and NIDA is the National Eating Disorder Association. They're based in New York, and they're a nonprofit. I am in recovery from an eating disorder, and so it's kind of affected me personally, and this is the first thing I've been really involved in. For me, I suffered from anorexia, so I would restrict. One of the most stressful things is to be asked, what do you want for dinner? Healthy weight, for me, is fat. To say, I have anorexia and one in five people die of anorexia is really difficult and terrifying to me. Especially because as I get more and more involved, I'm going to know more and more people. I've had friends pass away from eating disorders too many. My name is Brooke Jensen. I'm super excited that Nita came to Salt Lake this year because this is the first year that they've come. Okay, so thank you for coming out. I'm so glad the rain has held out. My name is Kristen Francis. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist at the University of Utah Neuropsychiatric Institute, and I'm the current president for iADEPT Utah chapter. I would say that it's only a stigma because people are afraid to talk about it, but when you do, you'll be aware that so many people have had a loved one or a personal experience with disordered eating. I think there's a true freedom that comes from talking about it. My name's Sydney Cutler. I had an eating disorder and I've been recovered for four years. 
when you're in an eating disorder, like I was, it's really scary and you don't have any control. And when you're introduced to recovery, it's a long journey. It can take a lot of years, but once you get there, there's still bad days, but you are able to live life again. My name is Cassie Blakely and I'm from Manti, Utah. So I'm an alumni from the Center for Change. I received inpatient treatment when I was 17. I relapsed when I was about 20 and did outpatient treatment through them as well. So I've been recovered for a few years, full recovery. One thing that I've learned from my relapse, um, I had a few years that were just great and then slowly little things crept in. So I really had to come to the realization that you have to be diligent and you have to keep choosing recovery. I had a nurse at the center, Becky, and she changed my outlook forever. And she was in recovery for years and she showed me what life could be like outside of an eating disorder. It just really influenced me that I can be a positive difference as well. So that's why I've been so open about my recovery because I believe that we can help each other. Once you get there, it will all be worth it and you'll look back and be proud of what you've done. Recovery is possible. Uh, it's, it seems impossible when you're when you're in an eating disorder and, and it's even something that you don't know that you want um, a lot of times when you're in an eating disorder because your eating disorder kind of becomes your best friend and so when you're in an eating disorder you can't you can't experience joy and happiness um, but in recovery you can and uh, it's so much I don't know it it's such a better life Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 